Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I have learned that one of the main difficulties in preaching is bridging the gap between the world of Scripture and the world we live in today. Our text today in Ephesians chapter 6, I don't think forcibly poses the same usual challenge upon us. With reports and images of war in Ukraine and Russia invading, we're witnessing before our eyes images of violence and battle. Paul's illustration, I think, is one we can perhaps more readily grasp. The weapons, the clothing, and the technology have surely evolved. But the illustration still evokes the same character of violence and battle. We see in chapter 6, Paul employing this language of armor and warfare to build upon what he's been doing earlier in Ephesians, describing this new life in Christ, our new humanity, which is reconciled to God and to our neighbor by the blood of his cross. In the previous few chapters, Paul is speaking specifically about this new life in Christ, how our union with Christ transforms every relationship in society, in the church, in the workplace, and in the household. This is a life of sacrificial love, mutual submission to one another, forgiveness, truthfulness, humility, patience, and holiness. The shape of this new life flows from our union with Christ. It is not of our own work. We who were once dead in our sins were chosen and adopted, justified, made righteous in him, bound to him by faith. Here in the final sections of Paul's letter, after establishing these characteristics of our life in Christ and the blueprint for our life together, Paul is stirring up the church in Ephesus to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Oftentimes, I think this passage is, is, is interpreted as a sort of locker room speech to stir up confidence or some sort of uh, rallying cry to the troops to muster more faith, to perform more good deeds, to share the gospel more, or to improve your prayer life. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. Rather, I think Paul is exhorting the Ephesians and us to find our strength in Christ and to put on the whole armor of God. I think it is important for us to make the distinction that this armor belongs to God. It is not ours. I think if we're tempted to read this as if it is our armor, we will struggle with legalism, with trying to stack up our morality to earn God's favor to white-knuckle our way through temptation. I don't think it's ours. If the armor is ours, I think we'll be disillusioned by our ambition to win a battle that Christ has already won for us. It is a gift of God, and it belongs to God. We take it up and put it on by faith. So you might be asking, what is the point? What is the point of this armor? 
It makes for a great Sunday school lesson or some songs, uh, perhaps at Vacation Bible School, uh, an old-timey metaphor. But what do shields, breastplates, and flaming darts have to do with us today? Is there any hope for us here in this passage? I want to make the case that there is great hope for us. I see in this passage that it is addressing the realities all around us. We witness and commit offenses against each other and against ourselves. We're grappling with truth and with scripture and faith and the ways in which those intersect with our our workplaces and our families and our culture more broadly. We have doubts about our faith and God's love towards us. And we know all too nearly the habits that we return to in our pain. This passage holds out both exhortations and promises, promises that belong to every one of us here this morning. So firstly, we must ask why we even need this armor. For the very existence of this armor presupposes a war, a war which Paul describes in verse 12 against the schemes of the devil. Paul says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul does not elaborate any further. So perhaps there is some common ground between him and the Ephesians that we don't grasp. Let's look at Acts 19, where we see in Ephesus, Jewish exorcists were trying to cast out evil spirits in Jesus' name. Instead, they were overcome and mastered by them, fleeing naked and wounded. They could not cast out because they did not belong to Jesus. We also know from history and from other contexts in Scripture that the Ephesians were saturated in the cult of the goddess Artemis. So demons, false religion, magic, spells, and goddess cults. This is the Ephesians context. Perhaps us here sitting this morning feel that we're too civilized to be able to relate to the Ephesians at all. Although I think that our bondage to our screens, our culture's passion for pornography, our deepening curiosity with horoscopes, the occult, witchcraft, and mediums suggest that we're not too far from Ephesus. Our cults have just been rebranded and repackaged and free and available for free one-day delivery. So looking at verse 12, I think we need to understand who we are wrestling with, who the enemy is, before we can grasp what the armor is for. Readers will typically move in two directions when looking at verse 12. Some readers will opt to demythologize or depersonalize the spiritual forces that Paul is speaking of. So they'll look at the evil activity of political forces or economic or social forces, they'll point to those as what Paul has in mind here. I don't think we need to be historians to to see that evil has surely operated in these ways. We can look to slavery in America or Nazi Germany or apartheid in South Africa. But I think this interpretation taken just by itself limits the scope of what Paul is getting at. On the other end, readers will opt to see the devil's involvement in every possible thing that could go wrong. 
spiritual warfare on steroids. When you sit down with your 10-piece McNuggets and you only count nine, the devil is out to get you. I don't think that is what Paul has in mind either, some sort of demon paranoia. So I think we must read Paul's description here in context with his other letters and with the broader narrative of the New Testament. And I think once we do that, we'll conclude that Paul has in mind both personal demons and cosmic powers of darkness. We see in Mark 5, Jesus confronting a demon-possessed man. He was crying out and cutting himself. When he encounters Jesus, he falls down before him and calls out, what have, you do, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Jesus then casts the demons out and sends them into the sea. So I think unless we are willing to demythologize the ministry of Jesus, we must take seriously personal agents of evil. Earlier in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he describes those dead in their sins, those outside of Christ, as belonging to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This passage is describing Paul's understanding of the role in the devil, the role of the devil for those who belong outside of Christ. They follow him into sin, and he works in them acts of disobedience. And we know from Romans, Paul describes those who belong to Christ, sinners and saints, as battling against sin and the devil by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think the devil Paul has in mind is a personal being who disrupts and distorts human flourishing and strives to tempt and deceive. He manifests himself through rulers and authorities. We can see that. But it is not specifically against flesh and blood, a phrase Paul is using to mean humans that we wrestle with, but the schemes of the devil, cosmic and personal. In our baptisms, this is the devil that we are called to renounce. The devil and the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. Personal and cosmic. So the battleground is set. We are united to Christ by faith, called to walk in love, and yet we wrestle with the schemes of the devil. And we need the whole armor of God to stand against him. The pieces of his armor, which Paul speaks about here, can be interpreted in a twofold sense, a gift and a charge, a promise and an exhortation. Each piece is given to us in Christ, and we are called to put it on, to take it up. Therefore, firstly, we stand firm by fastening the belt of truth. We bind ourselves to truth, who is Jesus, and his love for the world. This is the gift and the promise. And we are charged to speak the truth in love with our neighbors and one another. A few years ago, my dad was in the last few years of his career with a company he had been with for over 20 years. His boss had informed him that it was his responsibility to, to hide issues and delay their, their being noticed to an important client of theirs. He was essentially asked to disguise important information and instead tell them a different story about what was happening. He could have done this very easily, as it was just the last year or two of his career. He could have put his head down and followed orders. 
He was just one employee listening to his boss. But being in Christ, he belongs to a different order. He has been charged to speak the truth. And so through several conversations, he, he appealed with leaders to proceed with honesty and transparency, but he was outvoted. And so he was, so he respectfully resigned at great personal cost. His sacrifice being a signpost of the kingdom of God, speaking the truth in love. So we in the church live into the truth of Jesus and him crucified as we embody his love and speak the truth. This is our charge and exhortation. Next, we see that we put on the breastplate of righteousness. We have been justified by grace and made righteous by the blood of Christ. We are now protected by the righteousness of Christ. In the face of the devil, we can declare with Luther, if I have sinned, Yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned. All of his is mine, and all mine is his. This is our gift and our promise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul speaks of the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. The new humanity in Christ is created after the image of God in his righteousness and in his image. Therefore, we are free in Christ to walk in love, to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Oftentimes in the church, I think we frame these acts of righteousness as extraordinary acts of generosity and self-sacrifice. They sometimes are. But as the novelist George Eliot reminds us, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. I think realistically for many of us here, a life of seeking righteousness is mostly full of ordinary acts of love and faithfulness to Jesus. We can think of talking to your neighbor after a long day of work, after pulling into your driveway, comforting your crying child after they've fallen off the chair for the fifth time in one hour, being present with your coworker after they've opened up to you amidst a busy day, watching the kids so that your spouse can go connect with friends, or giving away your hard-earned money to those in need. All these acts embody a life that is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is our charge and exhortation. We then put on shoes for the feet, the readiness given to us by the peace of the gospel. Earlier in Paul's letter, he writes that Christ came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. The gospel equips and trains us to be a people of peace and steadfastness. For Christ himself is our peace, and through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. This is our gift and our promise. We are then equipped in Christ to share the good news of the forgiveness of sins, freedom from the bondage of sin. I think of my grandma's Baptist pastor who would go door to door in the community surrounding his church asking if he could pray for them or if they knew Jesus. 
his simple ministry of going door-to-door knocking altered my entire family tree, generations who have come to know the love of God in Christ. Paul says in Romans 10, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is our charge and our exhortation. And in all circumstances, above all other translations say, we are to take up the shield of faith. Our, our faith is not protective in and of itself, but rather the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, and his faithfulness to us. He is our protection. Our faith clings to God's promises as we walk through the valleys of our life. When the cancer is spreading, when another pregnancy test comes back negative, when a loved one dies, when your family is falling apart and you're not sure how you're gather everyone together, when you're overworked and weary, when you're stressed and anxious, we find refuge in God and his promises. He is our shield. This is our gift and promise this morning. The shield of faith, Paul says, extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. Every single accusation of guilt and shame, every lie that we are tempted to believe, that we are irreparably broken or unworthy of love, that we deserve to be without friends or to be forgotten, or that we are identified by our sins or our failures, or that we're simply just not good enough, either in work or our families. Christ, the Son of Righteousness, shines upon us and scatters all these lies. We lay hold of Christ by faith. This is our charge and exhortation. We then put on the helmet of salvation, the victory of God against the devil and all spiritual forces of evil. We who are bound to Christ by faith share in his death and his resurrection, the ultimate victory. For though we suffer in battle, we will taste the glory of God's kingdom and see our Lord face to face. God, the justifier, nullifies and discredits any charge that Satan brings. For we know that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And no one nor anything can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is our gift. This is our promise. This certain victory shapes and fuels our imaginations. We hope for his kingdom to come, for justice to roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, for the redemption of our bodies, for the vindication of the godly, the righteous judgment of evil, and for every tear to be wiped away and to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In our valleys and in our darkness, we can cry out with the psalmist, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is our charge and exhortation. And finally, Paul exhorts us to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and a marrow, 
and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. We are to inwardly digest these words of Scripture so that they shape and form us. Pastor Eugene Peterson says that we should read Scripture in such a way that they become interior to our lives. The rhythms and images becoming practices of prayer, acts of obedience, ways of love. Through Scripture, the Spirit penetrates our hearts, transforms us, comforts, encourages, challenges us, and tells us who we are and to whom we belong. This is the gift and the promise. We see that Scripture is the only offensive weapon in God's armor that he has given to us. We find refuge and defense in Scripture, but we also wage war. Equipped with the word of God, there is no place that we cannot go to proclaim the gospel. Missionaries are scattered throughout the world, translating and proclaiming the words of Scripture. Everywhere that we gather for faithful worship, preachers proclaim Scripture, an all-out attack against all the schemes of the devil. Every time we gather to read and study Scripture, we subvert and overthrow the devil's splintering and defeated power of earth. We read, listen, study, and cherish Scripture, not for any approval, to impress anyone, or puffed-up knowledge, but to deepen our love for Jesus. This is our charge and our exhortation. So upon putting on the whole armor of God and standing firm in Christ, Paul calls on us to pray at all times in the Spirit. Scripture teaches and cultivates such this life. We can turn to the, the Psalms, to our Lord's Prayer, to the parable of the persistent widow beating down the unrighteous judge with cries of justice, or the parable of the tax collector beating his breast, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Scripture and prayer are bound together, two life-giving ways that we encounter God. And as we live into Christ, putting on his whole armor, prayer sustains our hope and draws us into him. I think it is also critical for us this morning to see that the whole armor of God is for the whole church, not just for us as individuals. The imperatives that Paul is using throughout this section are plural in the Greek. Paul is addressing the church, the new humanity in Christ, the whole armor of God for the whole church. A little over three years ago now, my wife Mandy and I were in desperate need for exactly that, the whole armor of God for the whole church. Our precious oldest daughter, Lila, was stillborn at 35 weeks, and we were struck with shock and grief. Sometimes all we could do was show up to church and hear God's people sing, hear them confess their faith, and to listen to the words of Scripture read and proclaimed, reminding us who we are and to whom we belong, and to receive the body and blood of our Savior, pointing to his victory upon the cross and helping us trust in the promise, his promise, to make all things new.
We desperately needed our church's prayers, their prayers for us and with us. Their letters we received nearly every day for months. The truths they so graciously pointed us to to help us persevere through the pain. This is God's vision for his new humanity, his precious people, the church. Never perfect, but always growing up into Christ, the God who is with us. The whole armor of God for the whole church. So this morning, we stand firm with the whole church throughout all ages and throughout the, the, the globe. We stand firm in Jesus Christ, trusting in his faithfulness, casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light, putting on Jesus Christ himself, the one who took up his cross, bearing away the sins of the world, and by his resurrection, breaking the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Amen. We at last, they took your life. They could not.